Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1186, with guest John Papa. Recorded Friday, August 21st, 2015. And that is how you do that. What are we doing? We're doing another show. It's Dot Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here with John Papa. It's going to be a good show, folks. I can feel it in my bones. Nice. This is the last show of the day. We might be a little bit punchy, but we're still drinking tea and coffee. We're not uh, succumbing. Bourbon to hasn't it. come out yet. No, no, it's not. There'll be something tonight, I'm sure. Oh, probably. Yeah. Taco night at the fam house. Can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. Hey, I got something interesting for both you guys, John, if you want to comment on this, you're welcome to. This is uh, Better No Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? And by the way, John, take that as a compliment. You've clearly risen as a guest that you're now included in the Better No Framework. Before you get introduced, you may comment. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I was actually tearing up over here. <laughs> It's John. It's going to be a great show. Uh, uh, This is Babbel, and you may know Babbel. This is babbeljs.io. Okay. And it seems that there's a new JavaScript something comes out every day, but this is actually pretty interesting. It's uh, a compiler, a transpiler. Basically, it transforms JavaScript, JavaScript in, and ES6 or ES2015 today out. Tomorrow, who knows? Yeah, no kidding. I've actually been watching this thing thinking we should do a show around it just because it's so interesting. Have you played with this, John? Oh, yeah, extensively. Uh, Babbel.js, TypeScript, uh, CoffeeScript, Tracer, all that kind of stuff. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And I, I haven't, of course, played with it. But, I mean, it it is interesting in that this thing is going to maintain your JavaScript for you, you know, if you think about it like that. If you If you're all in. That's what it'll do. Yeah, and it's really more than a transpiler these days. It it was great. Originally, it was called Six to Five, yeah. which um, you know even the owners of it said you know short sighted in the naming originally because what happens when you go to ES seven? Then it's right. seven to six or seven to five or is yeah. it seven to three? Let's <laughs> <So. laughs> call it twenty five or six to four and be done with it. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, it's interesting, and you should take a look at it. Maybe we'll talk some more about it today, but uh, that's what I found today. Mr. Campbell, who's talking to us? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1087, a show where we talked a little bit about Spa and HTML5 with one John Papa. Never heard of him. Never heard of him either. Yep. Uh, and uh, Timothy Plurds actually had this comment. He said, another great show. Around 38 minutes in, John mentions unit testing JavaScript, and Richard says, unit testing JavaScript? That just doesn't seem easy. Hmm. <laughs> Well, actually, it's just unfamiliar to most people. I've been doing it for years, and it's easier than ever to get started. All of the great MV star libraries, so MVVM, MVC, whatever you want to do, like Angular, Ember, Knockout, Backbone, and so on, separate out your concerns, and this automatically makes part of your JavaScript a lot more testable. And I've recently written a blog post 
on how to get going on Jasmine, both in the command line and Visual Studio. So and Jasmine is a testing framework for unit testing JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So uh, happy, Tim, to just include a link to your blog here, the Chompy Dog blog, talking about unit testing JavaScript. And eh, another could be a very worthy show. Just talk about this in more detail. So thanks, Tim. Testing JavaScript is certainly possible. It's just a question of how organized you get. And it gets to this idea of why we're using these libraries to try and separate our concerns. Uh, so a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you can post a comment there, we'll read it on the show and we'll send you a mug. And of course, you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And, you know, we read them all. So uh, didn't Jeff Fritz have a JavaScript testing framework? Yeah, way back. He was building his own. Yeah, right. So uh, it's just uh, clear the space has matured further and Jeff has gone to Microsoft. Goodness knows what that means. Yeah, but uh, I think he was uh, showing it on uh, at a, a tech ed at a. Yeah, he did it as part of his uh, speaker, speaker idol. idol demo. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, uh, let's get to our guest, John Papa. He is a Google developer expert, a Microsoft regional director and MVP and author of 100-plus articles and 10 books, and is a former technology evangelist for Microsoft client teams. He specializes in professional application development with technologies including HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, Angular, Gulp, Knockout, C-Sharp, and ASP.NET. He can often be found speaking around the world at keynotes and sessions for conferences such as NGConf, Build, Mix, PDC, TechEd, VS Live, and Angle Brackets. John is co-host of the popular Adventures in Angular podcast and formerly was the host of the show Silverlight TV on Channel 9 and hosted many events, including the Mixer and Open Source Fest at major conferences. He currently enjoys authoring courses for Pluralsight. You can always find John at johnpapa.net uh, or on Twitter at John underscore Papa. Welcome back, John. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's uh, we haven't talked to you in a while, and some things have happened in the in the Angular space anyway, and and certainly new things are happening in your world. Yeah, yeah. Not to toot the horn too hard, but uh, the Angle Brackets lineup for the fall is looking epic. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm getting excited about uh, our conference here in the fall. It's in uh, gosh, when is it? Right before Halloween? Is that what yeah? It is? Last week of uh, of. October, just before the MVP summit. I think you get home just before Halloween, which I know is important for you. Yes, it is. Or you could stay in Vegas for Halloween because that's always fun. Every day in Vegas is Halloween. <laughs> yep. Right. And as Richard knows, I, I always uh, I book my conferences on two criteria. One, if it's uh, you know if it's going to be a cool conference, and then the second one is always on: Do my children or wife have any plans? Right. <laughs> so. Well, toot your toot your horns about uh, angle brackets. Tell us who's going to be there and what you're what you're excited about. I'm super stoked about Rob Eisenberg because I think Aurelia is going to land this fall in a big way. And to have him there and a bunch of others talking about it, I think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, of course, John Papa's going to be there. He is. And he's like the spa god there. I think you guys' workshop has already got a ton of folks signed up for it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we're doing a triple workshop this time, I think. We've got a TypeScript one, an ASP.NET 5 one, and then an Angular one. So wow. I'm going to be, my voice is going to be gone before the conference even starts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting, I really like the Angular patterns idea that uh, your talk, just 
thinking broadly. It's, you know, it's no longer an experimental library. It is an architectural approach to building software. And I think it's just thinking more seriously about, you know, web apps aren't a trivial thing. They are a major part of your application design, depending, irrespective of how you deploy them, you know. Can we start off with some meat and potatoes for the people who may have been sleeping and are just not paying attention? Tell us what you think, John, are the major differences maybe in architecture ability or whatever between Aurelia and Angular? Well, there, there's a lot of um, similarities, quite frankly, in how they do things. I mean, under the covers, they do things very differently, uh, at least as far as there's really three things to look at. There's Aurelia, there's Angular 2, and then there's Angular 1. Yeah. And, you know, they're very different how they operate under the covers. And if you really want to go further, Rob Eisenberg's actually, in my mind, kind of written three JavaScript frameworks so far. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wrote Durandal 1, which really dramatically changed in Durandal 2. There was an easy upgrade path, which was great, but it was, it was very different and much better. Uh, and then he went and created Aurelia, which was uh, from the ground up and is, is significantly better than the other two were. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty cool. And, and to me, the biggest advantage if you're looking at these things is if you're looking for something that's super simple to get into and kind of just makes sense, I think Aurelia is a great way to go about that because Rob is... Rob's brilliant. He's, he's a yeah, friend he of really mine. And, uh, you know, to be sound biased here, he's a good friend of mine. And he's brilliant, but that's not enough. What he really gets is he gets how developers work. Yeah. yeah. And he makes it easy for you to do things that just make sense and go, you know, I don't need to write 20 lines of code to make this connect to that. I have conventions that just make that work. And you can override them if you want. So to me, that's the advantage of something that anything Rob creates, quite frankly. I do remember in the show we did with him about Aurelia, he talked about the difference behind the hood about how, uh, you know, threads are used and uh, like a message loop or something like that. There's, there's something in Angular still that still in Angular too that um, can be detrimental to performance. But I can't remember exactly what it was. You know what he was talking about there? You know, we talked about some of this, and frankly, I'm I'm going to avoid the. Yeah. picking them both apart because he knows more than I would about that because he worked partly for the Angular team for a bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, I think the, this is my personal opinion. The thing I really look at is it's not always what's better. It's not the best thing that always wins in all cases either, Betamax. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's it's all about adoption and where companies want to go. And there, there's so many things that have to go into it. It's got to be awesome. It's got to yeah. be easy to use, got to be easy to deploy. It's got to have a big base of users who are using it because that's how you get support and you get, you know, demand. And if you're a hiring manager, you got to find somebody who's got the skill sets and it's got to work with the modern technologies around it. The yeah. ecosystem that Julie Lerman was talking about, the grunt, gulp, and bark, burp, or whatever else she had said. Burp and fart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, there's more to it than just which one is the fastest, bestest, most awesomenessest thing yeah. out there. Sure. Uh, and to, quite frankly, I think they're both great. So if you ask my opinion, I think Aurelia or Angular, if you're just looking for an awesome framework, either one of them is, is a great choice. And, you know, in terms of adoption, Angular had a big head start, of course. But, oh, yeah. but you see more and more people using and loving Aurelia. You are. And some people who liked Angular have moved over to that. And But you got to remember, too, it's the nature of the beast in this, sure. this JavaScript world is as many loud minority people you're hearing, and I mean by that, the people you hear talking about these frameworks are, you know, guys like me and Rob and some others and Dan, you're hearing about people using these frameworks who are switching from one to the other and trying them out. The average developer 
doesn't have time to switch at right. the drop of a hat. Sure. So if it's working for you, don't, don't worry about it. Don't Just worry. use the one you've got. It ain't broke. There's a value in productivity. And, yes. And it doesn't matter how great any framework is, there's going to be time to be productive. Mm. It doesn't happen instantly or for free. Yes. As much as I love Aurelia and I like Angular 1 and I like Angular 2, I can build the same app in any of those things and I'm not going to have such a major massive drawback in one or the other. I, yeah. Obviously, Angular 2, I haven't written a major production app yet in, but Angular 1, I've written several large production apps, uh, and even with Durandal before Relia, and they're both great. Yeah. So what's new in the Angular world, my friend? Dude, you guys gave me so many good ideas just by your intro. There's like, there's Babel, there's unit testing, there's <laughs> Angular. We could like a three-day talk on this episode, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Great. Let's tear into it. So there's a lot of new stuff coming with Angular 2. Uh, there's a lot of blog posts that, and I can give you guys these notes for your show if you like, some links that the Angular team's been putting out there. Uh, they're starting to release slowly ideas about, hey, here's how Angular 2 is shaping up, and here's how you might want to mix your Angular 1 and Angular 2 apps together. Hmm. Um, and think of that possibility. You yeah. can take an existing Angular 1 app and now add a new module written in Angular 2, and they work together. Wow. So you don't have to rewrite it. That's really interesting. Does that bloat your app by having two frameworks or does one, does two use part of one kind of thing? So there's definitely a little extra you have to do. It's, it's effectively the same concept as uh, polyfills and shims that you yep. have in the web now where, you know, you don't like, you don't have flash. So there, or sorry, you don't have um, HTML5. So you can use flash to kind of fill in canvas and older mm -hmm. browsers, for example. So yeah, there's, there's a little bit of bloat there. Definitely Carl, but uh the alternative might be, hey, take my 500,000 lines of JavaScript in Angular 1 that I wrote and rewrite it in 2. Yeah. yeah. Right. And suffering a bit just to know there's a bridge. At least yep. you could have it running together and then start your migration. You don't have to do a dead drop migration. Yeah. So last week we were talking to Chris Love about uh, optimizing sites, and he's down on frameworks altogether. And to the point where, you know, not not only no jQuery, but no Angular, no anything, just because of the overhead that it gives you. And, you know, talking about trying to scale out to lots of mobile devices, you know, mobile first is his mantra. But, but when you think about it in that way, there's, you know, uh, at one point it was like, well, you got to do what's practical, right? You have to balance what you're able to do with, with how well you can do it. And, you know, God love him. If if you can whip off a, an application that's as great as anything that you can do with Angular and Aurelia with plain old JavaScript, by all means, do it. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a great use case. And I try to break things down to the practicality of what we're all doing. If you're building applications who your audience, both developers and consumers, because mm -hmm. somebody's using your app and somebody is you know maintaining your app and writing it, if you're looking at those audiences... And you're expecting them to, on a large scale, maintain a large code base. What's easier to find? A custom non-framework that we've built from scratch that only you know the architects really understand or something that's more mainstream, mm. which is why things like you know, .NET or Java have done well. And I'm not saying that means they're better. What I'm saying is that if you have that concern and need, you know, a framework that John Popper wrote, and I have written JavaScript, my own little Frankenstein frameworks before Angular and stuff came out. Yeah. Uh, Nobody knew how to use them. I did, but they performed really well. They did what I needed, and I could tweak out every exact piece of performance I had for my business case. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're building a high-performance, 
performance is critical, like NASDAQ, 10,000 transactions per second kind of thing, you know, you're going to have to tune that and forget frameworks, forget ORMs, forget everything that's an abstraction. Yeah. And just write the fastest, most performant code you can. And in that use case, I absolutely agree with Chris that if that's where his audience is, that's a great way to go. You know, having owned a company that made websites go faster, we had an, we had a switch that was like, okay, I don't care about anything except speed. Do what you have to, to make this page as fast as possible. And what it would do is get rid of all the resource files. It would embed images. It would embed the JavaScript, the CSS, everything into one Titanic landing page. It was big, but boy, oh boy, it was fast and utterly unmaintainable. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a trade-off, right? So think about large companies, you know, I'm, I'm not working with these so I can say that you're like IBMs or the GEs, et cetera, the world. Yeah. So if you have those kind of companies and you have lots of developers and you're creating products for internal applications or external uh, for large websites, even uh, that face the online world, you have other needs too. Not only do you need to make them fast and awesome, but you need to support these applications for years and have, wouldn't it be great if you could have a consistent pattern that all your developers use so they can move from project to project and you're not maintaining effectively 800 different kinds of frameworks. So I think that's where something like an Angular or Aurelia can help you uh, as opposed to saying, you know, because you get 10 developers in a room, you're going to get 20 different ideas and what's the right way to write code if they don't have a framework. Uh, and that's that's a very difficult thing to maintain on a large enterprise scale. Yeah, absolutely. And a call back to the comment uh, that Timothy made about testability. You know, again, if you're making sustainable software, being able to put test harnesses around it so that other people have a chance to be able to pick it up, make a change and not break everything, that's more important than squeezing the last iota of performance out of the page. Yeah, you got to think about, you know, you don't want to, performance is important. Let me say that very clearly. Performance is important. Yes, it is. But you don't want to overanalyze for performance before you've even designed your application uh, to go. So you have to balance performance with maintainability with speed to market as well, right? It's also about the site itself. Like, you know, Chris used our site, our old, antiquated, crappy website as a, you know, to, to, to analyze it in terms of how it performed. And, you know, if you think about the, the traffic that we get, you know, occasionally people come and they check it out and then they listen to stuff and they go away. It's not a high velocity, high volume, uh, site. So it's, it never was that Im- as important to us to optimize for performance. It's not Walmart on Black Friday, right? Yeah, it's not Walmart on Black Friday. Exactly. That said, we, um, probably by now have a new website. It's a, a reactive, UI website. It was built by AppV Next, which is my consulting company. And uh, some really good guys worked on that that we're probably going to interview soon here. Because everybody needs a new website. Everybody right? does need a new website. <laughs> it's, it's a constant problem. Well, I think you think about the DNR site's gone through a few different evolutions. But uh, this latest one will be uh, completely modern. And uh, it's so different to the way we think about web today. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's amazing how different it is. And But at the spa is something else again. It's different. John, where are you seeing these projects land? Like, I, obviously, I think the greatest spa known to man right now is the Azure portal. Or Gmail. You know, just massive. Yeah. There, there's a lot of goods out there. You know, Virgin America is using, or Virgin Atlantic, whatever, the airline. They're using the, uh, they're using Angular to build some of their applications, too, on their online stuff. So when you book right. their flights, and you can Google that and find those pretty easily. 
there's definitely people using them. Where is it not a fit still? I mean, you're building a blog. I've heard people like saying, I'm using Angular to build my blog. I'm yeah. like, dude, WordPress. Yeah, right. Done. <laughs> Walk away. Yeah. Or you know what? Can't argue. I just said that the other day to somebody who's like, I'm, I'm going to start a blog. What should I do? WordPress. Like, stop talking. WordPress one. Go use it. Yeah, and people are telling me to use Ghost now because it uses Node and all this. And I, I tried that out because it's cool to try things. But I'm like, you know, I, I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with maintaining my own blog. Yeah. I just want something that just works. It's a blog. And that I can find someone to do new art for it. And that I can find a service yes. that will run it without me having to constantly supervise it. And on and on and on. When you buy a car, do you do you buy a car such that, you know, hey, let's change the engine this week. Oh, let's change the tires next week. You know, it's totally about the person, right? I, I the young kids that are getting into it now, they they got the energy to to tweak stuff. And, you know, when I was 19, 20 years old, I loved to build my own machines, you know? I love building yep. my own machines, but you, you just get, oh, it gets old after a while. You just want an automatic. You know, I had a stick shift when I was 20 and I loved it. And now I just like, no, I'm just like this big old Cadillac. Just give me that thing. I'll just ooze down the street. Yeah. That's what I want. I think a little bit more is I got things to do. Right. Yes. It's all about time in the day. And I'd yeah. rather be spending my, my development time because it doesn't dip into family time. I'd rather spend my development time learning about other new things. Yeah. As opposed to learning about how to write a blog, it's a problem that's already been solved. Yeah. So I'd like to solve new problems. But, you know, hats off to the kids with the, with the energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go get them. You know, it's, it's funny because you get into these, the spa world. And one of the biggest things I see as a, as a hurdle is if you've written web applications in the past 10 years, you've effectively written server driven pages, ASP.NET. JSP, Spring, PHP, whatever you've done, it's, it's probably been server-driven where you write the content on the server and then you spew up an HTML file, right? So web forms works that way too in ASP.NET. MVC works that way in ASP.NET. So wherever you've been, that's kind of the, the platform. Now switch gears to the spa world. If you try to take a same application that was server-driven over to uh, a spa where you're doing a lot of client interaction, the biggest thing that moves is all that presentation logic, not business logic, but presentation logic move from the server to the client. Right. So you, that changes a lot of things, not just the developer mindset, but think about the UX design. If you were in the past, were trying to get a performance site and you had to have somebody fill out, let's say, um, I don't know, but you're booking a party and you've got to have 30 names filled in with, and each name's got 20 fields associated with it. You might send up that form, that big, long, like, you know, tax form <laughs> up to the client in one shot. So yeah. they don't have to keep reposting. In a spa, you wouldn't want to bring up, you know, a thousand fields to data bind to. Because first, the user can't consume all that. And second, it's going to cause performance issues. So instead, forget about who's serving what and think, okay, maybe when I design this app, what I really want is I want to fill in one person at a time because that's all my mind can uh, focus on. And then after each person, maybe just have a swipe gesture if you're doing touch or just do a little click to say next thing. And it instantly just does a, a, you know, a 0.1 second animation that just puts person number two on the page. It's all client side. Now you're reducing your, your binding load by, you know, 30 times, having 30 people on there. You've got one at a time. It's just a different way to think about the UX involved. But if you don't do that, you end up building these large applications that end up getting taxed. And then everybody says, Oh, Spa sucks. Aurelia sucks. Angular sucks. You know, React sucks. And 
it's that's not the real case. It's that when you're building a different architecture, you build it a different way. Yeah. And and you've got to think about your pages the way that makes sense there. I I mean the, the in my mind, thinking overall and, and with enterprise tendencies, the heterogeneous nature of clients today pretty much needs us to do the UX work on the client. The the whole thing when you go this approach is now that back end service you're building, it'll work for any kind of client. Yes. And I'm even more impressed when you start looking at, I look at Angular Living in PhoneGap and I'm like, wow, like that makes a really nice phone app uh, that's a lot more cross-platform to build. Yeah, it's it's nice because there's so many angles you can take. If you start thinking about it that way, you can use your Angular JavaScript skills right in Ionic with PhoneGap. Yeah. But also think about how you take all these years and years of backend systems that we have that uh, expose data. So we have all these uh, HTTP services in the back end, and sometimes they're SOAP services that answer the question, how do I get my data out of my database? Well, they're not always going to be conducive to a client that's like a web client or a mobile client um, that needs just a little bits of that data. So what you can do now is you can take an ASP.NET 5, uh, which is uh, very fast, awesome stuff, or you can take like something with Node and Express, and you can build like what I call Web API facade layer in between. And that job of that thing is to handle I.O. fast and then aggregate and orchestrate the backend calls to trim down the data, make, go make four or five multiple backend calls, and return the smallest, leanest possible set of data up to the mobile or web client. Right. So there's ways to get from where we are today to where we need to be tomorrow without re-architecting the backend uh, using these newer technologies. And it's, it's really exciting. And still being sensitive to the real issue, which is that you're bandwidth constrained. The weak part is the wire. Yes. And not just the wire size, but also the speed of how many transactions you can do over it. Yeah. You know, do you do 10 HTTP requests in parallel or do you do one? And you've got, yeah. you've got to really tune that. Yeah. You know, I think it's an important part of the equation. And it makes me wonder, you know, what do we do before? I mean, when, when you were doing page rendering on the server and sending down the page, you were hauling more data. Uh, this actually, in a lot of ways, be, especially when they iterate for a while, when somebody uses a page for a while, if you add up the total number of bytes, when you're doing all that rendering on the client, you you got it loaded once. You know, you load the Angular once. I know Chris didn't like the size of it, but once it's down and you're using it for multiple iterations, it's pretty efficient than resending the page for every cycle. Yes. It's where do you want to pay the cost? Uh, and I'm going to make up fake numbers here. Let's say, just to round things off, let's say it's two seconds to load everything up front, but once it's there, it's literally 10 milliseconds to go page to page. Yeah. Well, you might think in your application, maybe two seconds to load the first page is too long. That that could be possible. So what's the alternative? Take a half a second to load the first page and then have a quarter of a second between every page transition. Yep. You, you've got, you're going to pay it somewhere. You have to figure out where that, that payment's going to go. The, the piper is still there and wants his money. Well, and 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 getting types of apps, right? Like if you're talking, and I've spent a lot of time on straight e-commerce apps where that home, that's why we came up with that crazy landing page function is the speed of that landing page directly equated to dollars. And so I didn't care how poorly maintainable that page was. Yes. This was the fastest page we could make. But if it's an internal app, and what you really want is a manageable experience or that, you know, you'll quickly forget the time of the first page. It's the next 15 interactions that matter. This model makes way more sense. Mm. So I think you're right, but I think it can also apply to uh, online sites where you're interacting with the customers. Because if you're going to a page where you're searching for things, 
where do you spend more time on, let's pick it's Amazon, since I have nothing to do with it. Right. To go to Amazon, the first page is nice. All you're doing is you want to search. You want to get there on that page. The only point of going to Amazon's front page, for me at least, is to get to that search button. <laughs> you know, I want to mm. get there so I can put in what I want. And then I can spend time in the rest of it looking through the results. So a spa in that sense actually makes sense to me too because you can load that first page. And I'm willing to wait that second or two to get there. If once I get on there, every search I do is like bam, 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 all over the yep. place. Um, so it depends. You get to that model of delight. Hey, okay, I, I worry about bounce rate on the first page. But the, the subsequent interactions being so much better, I mean, that's the memory that stays. Yes. As long as I can get them over that first hump. But, you know, if it's an internal app, they got to use it anyway. You know, they, that hump's not that bad. It depends how long you're playing with the app, too. So if you're going on an app that your users only spend like two minutes on, yeah. maybe it doesn't make as much sense. But if you're going to an app that people are spending a half hour on, mm -hmm. you know. It adds up. Yes. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? I uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to announce a new product that addresses the size and performance of your disc. Is your disc too slow? Does it? Take a long time for your disc to spin up. All right, you gotta laugh. This is really awkward. That's yeah, pretty awkward. <laughs> Does do people laugh at the size of your disc? Does your disc ever get stuck? Have you tried techniques to extend the size of your disc? Well, go to growmydisc.com to learn how you can improve your disc. Patent pending. Oh, come on. That's funny. I'm going to growmydisc.com. Ah, name not resolved. That's too bad. We're going to have to, we're going to have to buy that domain now. Hey, Tom Brady, you just won the Super Bowl. Where are you going to go? <laughs> oh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Dusan Plavak. Congratulations, Dusan. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Dusan. You know, I sometimes wonder if, you know, when it's a name from another country and we don't know whether it's male or female, then when we say golf clap for you, sir, that we're making a huge faux pas. So, And if we are, we apologize. We apologize, but golf clap for you, person. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Dusan just won the Telerik DevCraft bundle. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .net rocks com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. We also like to ask our guest, John Papa, and you know this well, if you had five large to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? I'm going to cheat because if I had to spend, if I had that kind of money... Honestly, right now, I would buy a ton of blackboards, like blackboards. glass blackboards to blackboard my entire office. Really? Like the whole room to be like that. Blackboards, not whiteboards? Blackboards, the glass ones that they have. Oh. I glass purchased boards. one. Yeah, the glass boards. Yep. 
Um, I love the way they look, and I, I'm a big. I can't get thoughts out of my head fast enough, mm. so I'm one of those guys that likes to write all over everything. Yeah, uh, and I love those rooms where you go in, and it's purely just wall to wall like that. So if I had that kind of money, that would help me with my tech. So you basically put you'd have white walls everywhere, and then you would put glass boards over them and just write with markers and wipe them off that kind of thing yeah that's actually i was looking at decorating my office like that but the way i've started doing it i've only purchased one right now because i don't have five thousand dollars is i i purchased a four foot by eight foot blackboard made of glass wow uh, i put on my wall and it's fantastic that's cool and how i dare to ask how much it is like what can we get for five grand glass board wise so retail, these things sell for like six, $700 for a four by eight sheet. I got mine for like 350 on a discount site, uh, but you could do like a whole room for probably uh, three grand if you wanted to do all of them. Yeah, yeah. Just cover the whole thing. I'm looking looking around here at the Claris boards. They're about 2000 bucks for a four by 10, which is pretty big. You two on one on top of the other, you pretty much cover a wall. The hmm. real trick is when I got when I installed mine, I had to have a couple of people come over because the glass board, again, it's glass and it's four foot by eight and it weighed over a hundred pounds. Right. So hanging it on the wall was an adventure. Yeah, no kidding. And you yeah. don't want to drop it. It's glass. Yep. <laughs> I uh, found myself in possession of a big piece of glass. I bought a, a conference table and this was on Craigslist, right? I had to drive an hour to find it, but uh, it comes with a glass top. And it turns out, the glass top is really not as great as you think it is. It's terrible for mice, right? Optical mice do not like glass. No. So everybody's got it, you know, and then on top of that, you got to keep it clean and everything. And then you don't see the wood. So I ended up not using that, but now I have this giant piece of glass that I have no idea <laughs> what to do with. So maybe I'll do what John says and hang it up on the wall and make a blackboard out of it. Yeah. yeah cool idea. Yeah. I really meant to talk to you about Visual Studio Code today, John. I mean, I'm happy for our spa update and sort of refocus on it because it's a great conversation. But have you been using this new tool that's really got nothing to do with Visual Studio? <laughs> oh, there's two angles I want to hit this from. I, I love it, first of all. I love okay. Visual Studio Code. But mm. I want to start off right away, and I hope I don't make anybody mad at the world of Microsoft. But I this thing had a code name, and its code name was Ticino. Oh, yeah. And it's a city and a province in both Italy and Switzerland. And it, it, the name of it was cool. I thought it was cute. But I really hated that they called it Visual Studio Code. Mm. Didn't do it any favors. No. And, and I understand the reasoning. So, and, and, I, and I grok it. It's not like I'm still um, upset about this in any way. But I did voice my concern that this thing really has nothing to do with Visual Studio. Yeah. yeah it, doesn't it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. It certainly doesn't act like it because it is fast. And it's cross-platform. <laughs> yeah, it uh, the compliment that's actually an insult. <laughs> but, but I get the reasoning for calling it this is now at least people who are no – Visual Studio has a great name, right? Yeah. And so people who have used Visual Studio can associate this with, oh, well, I love that. I'll probably like this. Right. Um, but the other side is there are people in this world who don't necessarily like the Microsoft names. Right. And are somebody using Sublime or Atom going to be interested in something? And maybe they don't like Microsoft in general. They're going to be interested in something that's called Visual Studio Code. Maybe not. Maybe no. not. 
And and you, you mean you mentioned atom? It's a derivative of electron, and this is a derivative of that. Yes. So you know, it's got more in common with atom than it has with Visual Studio. Absolutely. Well, the thing that's fast about it is that it's specialized, right? I mean, it only loads up these the HTML, JavaScript, and CSS files that you're working on, whereas Visual Studio proper will you you would tend to load a lot more projects and things into it. Isn't that true? Visual Studio is like Ask Jeeves. It, it does everything for me. Hey, you know, Siri, Jeeves, yeah. go get my coffee, do my laundry. Oh, and by the way, spin up a server in Azure for me. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it, it does everything. It's a very guided experience. It's an IDE. Mm. Uh, Visual Studio Code or Atom or Brackets or Sublime or Vim, all those things are more of a uh, fast, efficient experience where you know what you want to do, you may have a different workflow than than Richard, and I may have a different workflow than both of you guys, but we can use the same tool and then terminal and other things that we want side by side with it and get our work done. And that's yeah. the difference between an editor and an IDE. Right. IDE is mm-hmm. guided and editor is fast and you know very focused or narrow. And it's specialized. Yeah. Although the most of the Microsoft friendly people I saw, as soon as they looked at this, said, Where's my debugger? they did and the great thing is vs code is there's a there's a pendulum and on this pendulum it's something i've talked with and i I can't go further without at least congratulating and really giving kudos to the two guys who put this together and that's chris diaz uh diaz excuse me and eric gamma uh with microsoft and eric also helped build eclipse uh as well when he's at ibm right but these guys really got kind of what i was looking for and that's there's a spectrum of IDE and editor and where it sits. IDE gives you all this extra stuff. Editor is about fast, doesn't need a project file, can just run off of any folder. Uh, and it's not only fast to load, but it's fast once you're using it. You don't have to wait for anything. And then there's a, but you want a little bit of those extra features. Like you, you might want the debugger, right? That's kind of an important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So VS Code gives you a debugger out of the box, which today works with Node really, really well, whether you're using source maps of TypeScript or just straight up JavaScript. And it's going to be working very soon with ASP.NET uh, as soon as um, the, the sense I get, and I don't know anything more than you guys do, but the sense I get is once all that stuff's finally released, that's when they'll finalize how the debugger for that's going to work. Oh, I see. Yeah, just a lot of stuff in motion at once here. I heard Julie say something that I thought was really cool on your previous interview, and that's she made a, and I'll put some words in her mouth because this is kind of how I heard it, uh, was she used Visual Studio to do a recent web project and it was, you know, slow to download and not download, but to open up and load inside of there, try to use the debugger. And then she literally downloaded VS Code, installed it, and pointed it at her folder and was debugging in less time than that that took in Visual Studio just to trank up the debugger. Right. <laughs> yeah, she did say that. Yeah. So that was impressive to me to somebody who hadn't used the tool at all before. And it's funny how, you know, she talked about that uh, sort of existential angst that she had before, you know, I don't want to learn something new and all this stuff. And it turned out to really improve her experience. Yeah, the debugger in it is pretty phenomenal. And there's other things that make it nice. Like they've, they took things from Sublime. So backing up a little, I have a lot of experience with uh, Sublime, Atom, uh, WebStorm, Brackets, VS Code. I've tried all these editors, and for some crazy reason, I've decided that every three to four months, I'm switching my editor. Wow. I've been doing that for two years now, um, and I've, the great thing I've been learning is that I don't miss Visual Studio. Hmm. I don't miss WebStorm. I like these fast editors for probably, gosh, there's weeks where I don't crank up Visual Studio or WebStorm because I just don't need that power. Hmm. 
And I can just use my editor and fly through code. And the greatest thing is the ability to customize my workflow and like um, use it as a pure code editor. I get IntelliSense, autocomplete, and I can do things in that editor where I can edit. I can get a multi-cursor, which if you've never used Sublime before, that's kind of where it originated from. Mm. Um, all these other editors, you can literally create a cursor that exists every single place it finds a certain pattern. And then you can copy, paste, cut, and pull it apart uh, in like seconds. That's great. And it makes your life so much easier to deal with. Yeah, fantastic. What are some of the other things that you're excited about uh, Visual Studio Code-wise? So there's, you know, there's the standard stuff that you get, like uh, all the refactorings, like find all references, peek at code, go to definition, uh, renaming, rename all use cases. You get all that kind of wonderful stuff that you, you normally get. Uh, and it works great with uh, you know, the JavaScript and TypeScript and C Sharp. Mm. Uh, but it also supports things like Dockerfile, and it supports um, PHP and Ruby. And it's got all these different languages that it's uh, going to be supporting, which is, you know, think about that. Yeah. Visual Studio supporting all those languages is always like, whoa, why not just do C Sharp and leave it alone? And you know they've got a great JavaScript editor in Visual Studio now, but now you can do so many different languages in VS Code. It's uh, it's really for an everybody kind of tool. But I also like they've got task support built into VS Code. Huh. So let's say you're not sure if you want to use Gulp or Grunt or Broccoli or you know or Burp as Julie called it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to pick one. None of the, it's not like any one of those is tied to Visual Studio Code. Instead, what they do is they they got rid of the wizard concept in VS Code. There's no wizards. Everything's a JSON file. You want to connect to a task manager like Gulp? Great. There's a JSON file that you set up inside of VS Code and say, I want to run Gulp, and here's the command I want to run. Mm. And it'll automatically tie those two together. And that's it. It's not a new task manager. It's a, it's a traffic cop, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you could switch to Grunt or anything else you wanted to do or whatever's popular tomorrow. Do you know of anybody using this on a Mac? Uh, me. <laughs> okay. Really? Uh, yeah. I have almost completely switched, uh, almost completely, I've completely switched to a Mac uh, pretty much full time now. Um, and I've got a bunch of people at my office who uh, use Macs and Windows. And most of them at this point, a lot of them have switched over to using uh, VS Code, a very large portion of them without me even telling them. Mm. Um, but we also use, the, the cool thing is, some of the guys use brackets, some of them use Sublime, some mm. use VS Code, some use uh, IntelliJ. Uh, the cool thing is, in this new web world, the tool is almost less important sure. than what you're building. The tool doesn't nail you down to any particular architecture yeah. or any kind of uh, back-end. Yeah. I got to think, if you were booting into Windows on your Mac just to run Studio, like that's a lot of time. Yes. And that's what I was doing about two years ago. And I was still hooked on Visual Studio, but I was on a Mac, and the only thing I'd ever have to go to Parallels for was Visual Studio. Right. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great if I could just not do that and still work with these things? And guess what? If you're going to build ASP.NET 5 and you're going to tell people they can run on a Mac on it, you want to build an editor for them, don't you? So where do you think Microsoft is going then with Visual Studio? And if Visual Studio code is so popular, where where do you think the the big product is headed? Uh, It's a great question. So first, in my mind, and I, I, I can't speak for them, but no, it's I believe conjecture completely. Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code are completely non-competitive with each other. They solve very different problems. 
So one of them is the editor for that super fast experience. And the other is that super guided experience, which connects to Azure and Docker and everything else you want to do uh, all in one place. You, you know, you get buttons and wizards uh, in one side and the other one you get JSON and terminal. But I got to think that people who have this great lightweight experience, you know, now want to have that same performance and same level of responsiveness from their IDE. Um, don't you think that that that's a natural expectation that people are going to have? I think it is. And, you know, what was it? A couple of years ago, the Visual Studio team removed, I'm going to guess, 20 buttons off the toolbar. Yeah. And then none of us noticed, which was awesome. Yeah. Because there were <laughs> buttons we never used. Right. I think that should continue to happen, you know, trimming out the fat. And I know they have a lot of analytics on how people use Visual Studio the, the proper. Um, and if things aren't being used more than 5%, 10% of the time, why is it there? Make yeah, it a plug-in, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah, push it down. You have to wonder... You know, there's two ways to fix, quote unquote, I got, you know, air quotes here, fix Visual Studio. I mean, they're clearly re-engineering Studio to put ActiveX behind them, do more of the Compose MEF model for bringing plugins and so forth, trying to lighten the product up, make it faster. I mean, you compare 2010 through to 2015, it's just dramatically faster. Mm -hmm. But there's also this idea of a reboot. Like, you know, code could be the kernel of a new version of Studio as a whole. It really could. I think there's a lot of opportunity at Microsoft to rethink things that have been around for a while, uh, like they have done with ASP.NET, for example. Sure. Yep. Sure. And they rebooted it. I mean, Studio has legacy code in it going back to... Com. Yeah, 95. Yep. Right? Visual Basic, like before .NET. Yeah. And I think that's why it was great to build something that was different to at least, instead of trying to Visual Studio solve all the problems that Sublime and Adam and everything else are solving cross-platform, is let's face it, building Visual Studio work cross-platform is going to take a lot longer than oh, yeah. building something new. And the cool thing is, you already mentioned it, Visual Studio Code is actually built on a couple things. It really needs three pieces to work. One, it needs that super fast editor experience yeah. uh, that's out there. And for that, they actually leverage Monaco, which they have online and, you know, like OneDrive and, and uh, VS Online and uh, Internet Explorer for the editor, uh, for the debugging. So they've had that. Then they also leverage Electron, which is the Atom shell, effectively, yep. that Atom uses, for that great UI framework, which does things like auto automatic updates. So they're using an open source tool uh, like that, and they've contributed back to that. They built their editor on top of it, so they got their own thing. And then they're using things like the Roslyn compiler and they're using TypeScript to make sure that they've got these super awesome brains for JavaScript, TypeScript, and C Sharp inside VS Code to give you more of an IDE-like experience. Mm. Uh, and those are the three things that kind of really put it together and kind of make it nice so it can work in Linux, Windows, or Mac. Do you have any, uh, do you have a wish list? Oh, yeah. So it's not out. It's not out yet. Yeah, it's out, but it's not released officially yet in V1. Uh, currently at this recording, I think it's at 07. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that they haven't done yet, and they are, they have been working on it, is finding the right way to do a plugin system. Yeah. Because everybody in the, in the community is going to make these things, but, and there's a rush. You know, they want to get it out there, but if they build it wrong, for example, and then people build plugins, then that'll all break. Yep. So they want to get that right. That's the biggest thing they need to do uh, to get this thing moving. A cross-platform plugin system is not a trivial problem. Nope. Yeah, my first thought was meth, but then you have all these dependencies. Exactly. Yeah. And it's got to be lightweight. And keep in mind, right now, the download's like 
I'm guessing 65 meg. I'll go yeah. download it now and see how long it takes. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I'll race you. <ya. laughs> All right. Ready, set. I clicked. There we go. 69.4 10 seconds. Meg. I have two left. Five seconds. I got it. <laughs> oh, one second. I'm done. Three times larger than the first hard drive I ever had. <laughs> it's still <laughs> tiny. We should have done is have, uh, we should have had Carl try to download Visual Studio at the same time. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> He'd still be logging into MSDN. It'd still be fixing to download. <laughs> <laughs> 1. Yeah. 1.6 gig remaining. South of the yeah. Mason Dixon line, the RR says, fixing to download. That's right. Yeah. I'll tell you, I was so excited about this tool. Uh, I, I sent a letter to, uh, on, the, on one of our internal lists, the regional director list we had, Microsoft, mm-hmm. about a year ago, that ended up in Soma's hands, uh, where I basically flamed Microsoft for not providing some kind of cross-platform tool. I'm like, you guys are awesome at tools. How can you be ignoring this space? Right. And I gave a whole long list of my experience with Sublime and Atom and WebStorm and all these other tools. Uh, and, you know, many moons later, uh, a little before build, I got pulled into what they were building with code and they asked for some feedback. And I loved it so much that I actually offered to go and go to build and uh, help present it because I was just that impressed, not just with the tool they built, but with the mindset of Microsoft to say, we need something that is free cross platform and people can use. And there's no money behind it. I mean, it's just not a paid product. There's no dollar signs at the end of this rainbow. This is about mindshare and, and winning developers. Uh, and I, I, that to me is, a, is a, what I always loved about this open source world and the things like Angular and, and what Microsoft has been in the past and looks like they're moving towards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the whole thinking I've got here going back and saying, if you were going to start over on a development environment, what's different? Well, you'd start with a great editor. And then you'd start building plugins that, that can handle all these things. And it's got to be a diversity of language. It's got to be a diversity of platforms. But it's just a different set of rules than what you built on in the first place. And yeah. They did the right thing by Visual Studio back then with what they knew and what was available then. The fact that we've changed doesn't make Visual Studio suddenly wrong. No, no. Visual Studio is still a phenomenal tool. It really, really is. But it serves a different purpose and it serves a different audience. And this is a way, if you're going to look for people outside of the .NET world to use your tools, this is yep. one way that you can now look at this and say, here's a guy who's never written a single line of .NET, doesn't really have any interest in it, but now can use these tools and might say, you know what, let me try that ASP.NET 5 over here on my Mac running VS Code against AWS. Speaking of ASP.NET 5, how are you liking it? I'm mixed. I love the people building it. <laughs> it's, yeah, they're uh, your friends. They are my friends, very good friends. Uh, you know, Mads and Hunter and Hanselman. I love these guys. Um, I love what it's doing, and I love how it's modeled after Node. My biggest concern with it is it's it's solving some problems that it's very Node-like, and I love that it's doing that. Yeah. But I feel like the client side of that aspect is still to be determined and how they're going to tie that world in. Uh, so I love what they've done with ASP.NET 5, and I'm really looking forward to being released, and I'm using it now. Uh, Dan Waller and I have done some stuff. What do you mean the client side? So it's still very server-based, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's still very much in the mindset of Razor and developing um, you know, HTML tags and the tag helpers yep. that generate client-side code from the server, yep. uh, which is fine. But 
to answer, you know, I think there's still a huge opportunity to make the client side space easier. You know, again, think about Julie's episode with you guys and how much pain it is to learn the 40,000 things you have to learn to do client development. This is really interesting. You know, this is something that we brush up against a lot on the show and have been for years. And that is, you know, uh, people want an easy experience. So Microsoft makes web forms. Wonderful. We get very productive, very fast. We hit a brick wall. Oh, nope. We have to learn some more now. And so we have to go and we have to learn about HTTP and we have to learn about pipelines and, and uh, JavaScript and all this great stuff to get, you know, to be better programmers. And then all of a sudden we need something that is as easy as web forms again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. What they're doing is not wrong. It's just, it's solving one side of the equation. And I believe in these guys and I think they see the need and the opportunity because nobody's doing this. Nobody is trying to solve how do we make that client side experience better? Yeah. 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 How do you get the, the productivity of a designer, like a web forms designer and under the hood, make it as smart as a spa and as smart as a, as a, uh, you know, a full blown reactive UI. Yeah. And it's a, you know, to be fair, I'm not 100% on VS code right now. Uh, I've done a lot of work with it, but again, I'm. It's been four months since I started using it, so it's about time to switch again. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to be trying. Some, I'm going to be going back to Adam again. This time, it's it's my turn to go back to that. It's been a year uh, to go back and see how it's built on Electron to see what else it's doing. Mm. Uh, but that's just because I'm weird. I like <laughs> things. I'm willing to experiment. Yep. You learn a lot by looking how the other half lives. And I just did a whole course on the VS Code that'll be up on Pluralsight uh, in a couple of weeks. And I had a lot of fun building it. Uh, it's a pretty good tool. But I think there's still opportunities to look at, you know, what are other tools doing that maybe could be taken advantage of. That's great. John, thanks a lot for spending time with us today. Sure. Great, like always. Always great talking to you. We'll see you at Angle Brackets, that's for sure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a